Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 132 of the podcast, my name is Dr. David C. Noe. I am here on a nice, somewhat cool October evening in the Vomitorium, Vomitorium South, down in the bunker with my good friend and uh, splendid co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you this evening, Jeff? Feeling good. I like the brisk out there. It is brisk, isn't it? I like a good it? brisk. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So it's feeling, it's feeling nice out there. I'm feeling good. Had a good day of teaching today, as I was mm-hmm. just telling you about before, yeah. before the show. So it was, it's, it's been great. Yeah. yeah and, um, you know... In line with tonight's theme, yes. If it's brisk, but it's a little less brisk, it's a smaller amount of brisk. It yeah, would be. It'd be a brisket. It'd be brisket. <laughs> exactly. Right. Oh man. Exactly. Okay, I'm kind of sad how natural that came. That just that <laughs> just came in uh, pretty easily. It did. Yeah. yeah so um, you're feeling all right. I am feeling well. Yep. I'm feeling quite well, thanks. You've yes. got you've got a, a trip coming up, right? I have a trip coming up. I'll be traveling down to the great state of Texas. They know uh, a thing or two about Longhorns. Yes, they do. I'm going to go to Baylor University, and I'll be a co-hosting, co-leading with uh, Dr. David White on their classics faculty and Dr. Patrick Owens. Yes, who has uh, been a guest on this show. That's correct. Yep. yep. He is at uh, Colgate University um, this year. Uh, I think his teeth are gleaming, actually. <laughs> and um, we're going to lead the uh, the Biduum Belarense, uh, a two-day spoken Latin conference. Fantastic. Be doing that uh, on Saturday. Excellent. And you have so. not done one of these at Baylor before, right? Never. Right. No, no. Yeah. I've been to Baylor a number of times, you know, but um, never led one there. So this is very exciting. Very Excellent. exciting. Well, I, well, we'll have to definitely get a report on it. Uh, All right. The next show. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what's new in the world of Winkle? Uh, not a lot new. The wonderful world of Winkle. Kind of halfway through the semester right now, I'm, I'm, uh, I am knee, knee deep in, in midterms. Um, and so, you know, all the, 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 my least favorite part of the job is yeah. waiting, waiting through those blue books, but um, so, so, everything's good. So do you have a certain method? I, I was would like to ask, you've got big stack of blue books, you know, big um, tub maybe of red pens. Yes. How do you do this? You just toss them on the stairs, wherever they land, that's the grade they've earned? More or less. Like I, I have a big wheel that I spin, okay. you know, exactly. It's got all the letters from, you know, from A to F. And right. It's, it makes it, it simplifies things. It simplifies. It's really easy. What's, yeah. what's a, um, what's a typical comment that you might write on a student's paper if you're either praising or you know um, bringing the vituperation um i think that one probably the one that i write the most is uh something like some really good thoughts here uh but your evidence is much too general to fully address the question nice. i should have a stamp that just simply says that yes that'd be better <laughs> yeah, right exactly how about you yeah, yeah well um a common remark i used to make was awk period what does that mean is awkward that awkward right <laughs> like like, the, like this the, is there's something decent here but it's just so it's just so awkward. Like if, if I were passing you in the hall, yeah. right, you were carrying this paper and you read me this line, I would just feel really uncomfortable. You kind of cringe a Correct. Bit? I'd just move over to the side of the hallway. So you would just literally write awk? Awk, period. <laughs> well, because it's not necessarily anything um, wrong with it mm-hmm. grammatically. It's a style thing? It doesn't fit the oh. argument and the flow. Yeah, right, right, uh, right, Maybe the brevity of the comment was what led to so many student questions. Like, what's awkward what's about that? it? <laughs> what does awk mean? Exactly. And uh, you're like, come on. Come on. You've got to see it. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, for the Latin students out there, there's a wonderful adverb that captures this. Inepte. Inepte. The, yes, the, the ad- adverbial form of the adjective ineptus. It doesn't fit. You know, yeah. it's not suited. Inepte. So. Right, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. So, Jeff, what are we talking about this evening? Uh, we're going to wrap up our look at Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound tonight. Yes. Uh, we got, which is uh, the section we're on, is going to be um, looking mainly at the IO episode, right? Where she shows up and encounters Prometheus. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was reading through something this week. Uh, perhaps um, during the course of the episode, I'll remember what it was. Uh, but in the footnote, I came across this abbreviation: P period V period. And for a split second, I said, "What? Oh, right." Prometheus winked us. Winked us. Yes. You, yeah. would have, you would have caught it immediately. It took me a split second. But as is so often the case in the older books, which I think on the whole are better, um, these plays often had a Latin abbreviation. Right. So now it would be PB, yep. but then it was PV, Prometheus winked us. Right, 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 right. 
Yeah. Um, so Prometheus winked this uh, part three tonight. Uh, part three in, in our in our final uh, wrap up of our look at it, and we have a shout out tonight. Yes, isn't this nice? Yeah, you want to tackle this? Yeah, I'll get it started. Okay. It's uh, it's rather long. Uh, one thing I love about our listeners is that uh, you know many of them are fine writers and quite uh, conversational. Yes, Pro- prolix. It's very true. Yes, even very prolix. So here we'll give them a you know a little bit of a I don't know if you can say moment in the sun. That's probably too self congratulatory. But here we go. So this comes from uh, Mr. Michael J. Stell. Michael J. Stell. We'll read his uh, alphabet soup when we get to the end. Mm-hmm. He says, I have been listening to the podcast for over a year now. Uh, Jeff, do you remember what the subject heading was for this email? Uh, I, I don't. Something like um, a long overdue shout out. Oh, yes, that's remember right. Remember that? That's right. Yes, I do. I now, I took yeah. a little umbrage at that. Oh, how so? Was he saying that he was long overdue and asking for one? Or we were long overdue in giving him one. I think that's what it means. You think it's the so, latter? See, now I'm taking it personally. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Michael, we're supposed to know yeah. that you're listening, even though you never contacted <laughs> us. And we're supposed to acknowledge you on the air, even though we know nothing about you. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So a lot this, of ambi- ambiguity in that. It is a lot of uh, presumptuousness. I would, I would say, say so. so. Yeah, but nevertheless, we're going to give him his shit. All right. All right okay. I have been listening to the podcast for over a year now. I teach humanities, theology, and philosophy at a class. Classical Christian School in Maryland. Most of my own study and teaching has been on the modern period, but modern literature relies heavily on classic literature. I mean, just try to understand Shakespeare without knowing the classics. A lot of people have tried. Exclamation point. Yes. And let's face it. Now, I'll just say, I would not write awk next to this. Okay. I would put a large exclamation point or two. Yes. Meaning these are excellent points. Yes, very good. Keep it going. Yep. And let's face it, to teach at a classical school means one must know the classical period and canon. You guys have made learning the classical canon fun, and I even enjoy the puns. Jeff, don't read what's in the parenthesis. <laughs> I have to. All right. He says, well, most of the time. Yeah. Says, All right. Thanks a lot, Michael. I appreciate the honesty. You do? I do. <laughs> I'd rather be lied to. Tell me lie in the name of that, in you know the words of that famous poet, tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Yes, Fleetwood Mac, right? Is yeah, that who it is? That's who it is, yes. Okay, exactly. you want to continue? Yes, I like this, that in uh, this, uh, this shout out, he gets very specific about the topic yes. we're talking about. This is great. So he says, one of the texts that I teach is Frankenstein. Uh, which has the subtitle, The Modern Prometheus. I was actually thinking before I got his email, I said, we should mention that that um, that reference, right? Or maybe even do an episode. That is a brilliant textbook. Uh, that is a brilliant novel. It is a brilliant novel. You know, I was just, I was, it led me to um, to do some, just some quick reading about right. Mary, Mary Shelley. What was, and, did you have some grading to do? Is uh, that what led you to that? Well, exactly. <laughs> Often my mind will wander. Right. And um, and so I did not remember the fact that she she originally wrote Frankenstein at age 18. And she wrote it in one night, if I'm not mistaken. The first draft was yes. something like a nine-hour marathon. Yes. And, and she ended up publishing it two years later when she was 20. But that's extraordinary. It is. We've talked, we, I think we've talked on the show about how, you know, what, when lives were more nasty, brutish, and short. Yes. That um, you know, many of these people's lives, there's much more of kind of an impetus to do to get things done early. Right. Um, but I can't imagine. It, it, it's just extraordinary to me that you know, cranking this out, almost like a... Like uh, you know, like Jack Kerouac and on the road, just kind of mm. cranking it out in kind of a one fevered session. Really, um, and then and, and Shelley does this as you know what we, we like a senior in high school. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Well, it is unbelievable. Yep. Well, there's you know the, the the possible parallel when the musician goes into the studio and records the whole album in one take yeah. or something. Right, like right. That. It nails it on the first take. Yeah, that's yeah. that's phenomenal. Yeah. So that's a great uh, it's a great novel. Maybe we should uh, do an episode at some point. It'd be wonderful. Yeah. But uh, Michael continues. Yes, he uh, he says while generally aware of the story of Prometheus, and we discussed why Shelley may have might have included that as a subtitle for the book. I have found your discussion of Prometheus Bound to open up many more avenues of exploration for the way that Shelley deals with the central tension of the book. What if man could, like God, create life? When I teach Frankenstein in the spring. I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to those podcasts and expand our discussions of the book. Oh, we like that, we don't do. we? We like that very much. That should inflate our numbers nicely. Yes. <laughs> what do you think, Jeff, just yeah. as we make our way through this mm-hmm. very interesting um, shout out? Yeah. What do you think about the canard, uh, the common canard that, um, you know, the creature with the bolts coming out of his neck <laughs> and this, you know, square forehead and such? <laughs> right. That's not actually Frankenstein. He's supposed to be called Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, I think that's technically correct. It is. Right? But, but how do you feel when people try to hyper correct? I'm trying to. 
Oh, um, I feel okay about it because I think I've been that person. Have you? Yes. You've been the well actually. Well, I've been actually. Right? I've been the well actually guy. I try to Have tamp. I, I try to tamp that down. But I'm trying to leave that guy behind. I, I mean, yeah, me too. Me too. But it does kind of bug me when when that that creature is referred to as as Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was Doctor Frankenstein's monster. Yes. But Victor. That's way too long. That's <laughs> right? way too long a name. How's he supposed to fit that well, on a business well, card? We should call him Phil, right? <laughs> <laughs> he needs. He does need a shorter nickname, right? Yeah, but, Dirk. Right, maybe. So. So yes, I don't. Yeah, I, it doesn't. It doesn't keep me up nights. But yeah. I admit that's maybe bugged me in the past. Okay. Right. Okay. Carry on, would you, Dave? Yes, Michael says uh, I enjoy listening and I recommend the podcast to my colleagues and our new teachers as a fun and accessible way to delve into the sometimes daunting world of classical literature. Keep up the good work. That's very nice. That's very nice. That's excellent, Michael. And um, actually, I think the, we're almost at the end of the episode now that we've uh, finished the shout out. So <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening. No. Do you want to read some of uh, Mr. Stell's uh, distinguished accomplishments here? It's uh, impressive. Yes. So um, he is uh, so he's a, uh, the dean of rhetoric, uh, uh, dean of the rhetoric school at uh, the Classical Christian School in Kingsville, Maryland, Redeemer Classical Christian School. Uh, he has a master's of philosophy, and he is finishing up a PhD. Wow. I don't think he wrote in what, but I'm guessing philosophy. Probably. I'd imagine. Yep. Yeah, you know what PhD stands for, right? Uh, piled high and deep. No, post hole diggers. Post hole diggers. <laughs> yep, I have one uh, hanging in my uh, garage at home. So. Oh, nice. Right. He is as as we as we say, he is ABD. Right. right? All but dissertation. Yes, all but dissertation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, good luck with ending that because we know that absolutely that is a that is a major accomplishment. Yes, and apparently the. Um, Tradition is when you see someone who has recently uh, finished off their dissertation, you're supposed to give them a hug. Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't heard this. That didn't happen? No. Are you setting me up for something? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. Okay. So if I, if I, if you see Michael, you know, you got to embrace him. Give him a hug. Yeah, the PhD brotherhood. He's got a nice PS here too as well. Jeff, you want to read that? Yes. He says, I have used the Hackett, Hackett coupon code several times. That's awesome. Yes. Get, Thank uh, you, Michael. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so take a hint, uh, listeners. He says, unfortunately, I still have to use the Dakin Blecker coffee machine on a Christian school teacher's salary. Okay. Maybe the ratio four. Uh, will be attainable for us poor hoi polloi on the front lines of making Cue the, the violins. Classics great again. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael, for yeah. listening. We're very grateful. We do. Very, we appreciate it. That was, that was great. That yes, was great. thanks so much. All right. Well, Jeff, we got to get into it, don't we? Yes, we, we do. Yep. Prometheus Bond, we have to uh, finish this off, and uh, the story is headed in the direction of a wandering, forlorn, dewy-eyed, heartbroken, four-stomached young lady yes. named... <laughs> named Io. Io. Yes. Right, and uh, shall I dig into our opening quote? Yes, yep. please. So this comes from a an article entitled "Io's World: uh, Intimations of Theodicy in uh, in Prometheus." Not not the Odyssey, but no. uh, the Theodicy. Theodicy. Yeah. So having to do with the justice of God. That's right. You right. want a little pedantry? Please. Okay. So Theos, God, and Dike, justice. You shove those two words together, you get Theodicy. Right. An account of uh, God's justice in a wicked world. Right. And so I thought this was an interesting take because, as we've talked about in the first two uh, episodes, is that um, a typical uh, interpretation of this play is that we see Jesus as a tyrant, right. that he is inherently unjust, and Prometheus does not deserve his suffering. And I thought this was an I thought this was an interesting take. This is by one Stephen White from the Journal of Hellenic Studies from uh, the year two thousand one. That's just like yesterday, <laughs> right? And he makes the argument that uh, maybe that's not the best way to take this. Okay, this is tyrant. Um, I'm interested in this. Can you read the quote, please? Yes. So he says, "Taken straight and by itself, Prometheus Bound is a deeply subversive play. Its eloquent and defiant protagonist makes it one of." One of, the, one of the most compelling from antiquity. Prometheus on stage from beginning to end dominates the scene. We witness his binding in the prologue. We faced his shackled body throughout the play and we hear his tirades against tyranny, the litany of his gifts to mortals and his vivid directions for the bewildered Io. To remain unmoved, we would have to be, as the chorus exclaimed, iron-hearted and made of stone. Sympathy for the rebel, however, exacts, exacts a heavy toll on his adversary. If Prometheus suffers unjustly, Zeus is a despot. And if he suffers for helping mortals, Zeus is a misanthrope. George Thompson's verdict is widely shared. That is, Zeus is a tyrant and his rule is tyranny. We learn this from his own ministers who are proud of it, from Prometheus who denounces it, from the ocean nymphs who deplore it, and from the god of ocean who is resigned to it. The fact is incontestable, and the only question is how the dramatist intended his audience to interpret it. Are we then to conclude that the rule of Zeus is arbitrary, cruel, and inhumane? Hmm. And uh, he suggests uh, that, for the most part, most readers of the 
of uh, of the PV right. would say yes. Yes. Right. So my first encounter with Zeus in any sustained way was as an undergraduate at our former institution. Mm-hmm. I probably had heard hints here and there, but remember I didn't have any acquaintance really with classical literature until um, college. Right. And it was uh, Dr. Richard Weavers, you know, yes. a man who taught us both and I think taught me very well. Yeah, same here. Um, he describes Zeus as this. Um, Zeus is a big brute that refuses to die. <laughs> right? He gets his way everywhere he goes. He yes. terrorizes people. He's a big brute that refuses to die. Yeah. So the hallmark is power expressed by immortality. He can't, he can't be killed. That's stuck with me, and I have explained Zeus in that way to students yeah. in, many, um, in many settings, primarily to contrast him with the notion of the Christian God, who is also immortal, um, but uh, is moral in a way that Zeus, at least in these plays, didn't seem to be. Yes, agreed. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think we ought to test that principle here that uh, White is laying down. Right. Well, let me just let me carry on with there's um, there's a part later in the article okay. where he steers it towards his, which I think is a very intriguing thesis. I don't know if I buy all of it, but it's an interesting idea. So the, uh, the, later in that same article, uh, White writes, Prometheus gives Io what he already gave all mortals, instructions for survival and great expectations of Elpis, hope. But their encounter does more than exemplify his gifts. It also reveals how their ordeals are both parallel and complementary. Io's journey represents in the social sphere what the punishment of Prometheus does in the political sphere. Each dramatizes a process of acculturation as submission to the authority of Zeus, the subordination of women to men in marriage in the family, and the coordination of free citizens in the political community of Apollos. So he's kind of setting up the argument okay. is that um, you know, ultimately it's about both Prometheus and Io coming around to recognizing Zeus's authority. And that Prometheus in what he's done, stealing fire and such, he's kind of a, he's a rogue. He's kind of a loose cannon. And Io represents, even as unjust as it you know, sounds to uh, a modern moral Judeo-Christian right. audience, what she's encountered, her kind of, her sexuality is also kind of now out of bounds. And so they've both got to be kind of brought under Zeus's umbrella. And so White's making the argument that ultimately the play, uh, in conjunction with the second and third play, which are largely lost, is really about not subverting and fighting against Zeus's tyranny. Mm. It's about finding a place within it. Okay. Right? So to reread just this one sentence here, which now as I look at it, seems like the hinge of his thesis. Mm-hmm. Each dramatizes, each being Prometheus and Io, mm-hmm. a process of acculturation as submission to the authority of Zeus. Yes. So that's it. That's The play is about how we have to come to grips with a powerful um, but unjust God. Yes, but I, but I think he's also saying is that um, the focus should also be on how out of bounds both Prometheus and Io are in a in a, a democratic society that has a number of ex- acceptable social norms. Mm. And so, yes, Zeus comes off as a tyrant in the in the first play, but he's. Um, it kind of reminds me of you know advice that I was given as as a teacher. It's like you know early in the semester, yeah, be harsh, crack the whip. You right. can always let up later. Right. And so maybe that's you know so Zeus ultimately is the is the power uh, that kind of represents uh, democracy mm-hmm. as, as an ideal later on um, that we have to kind of come under his rule to kind of to live properly. Okay. All right. L- let me just re- read the rest of this. So he, he writes, to vindicate the legitimacy of these basic Greek institutions, the play envisions a chaotic state of nature in which both characters suffer. Io's wandering is a mythic projection of female sexuality, untamed by marriage, wild, vulnerable, and bewildered. In pointed contrast, Prometheus embodies male intelligence unrestrained by civic norms, bold and cunning, but blind to justice and moderation. Both represent capacities essential for the maintenance and renewal of mortal families and societies, maternal fecundity and clever ingenuity. Can we pause there a minute? Mm-hmm. This is really interesting. It is. It, it may be too clever by half. That's That was kind of my sense of it as well. It's like he's almost being contrary to the to the, the, the typical interpretation right. for the sake of being contrary. I'm not sure. So so Io subtly reinforces the need for women to remain um, supporters of the status quo because we see the terrible consequences for someone who ventures outside them. Yes. Even if it's against her will. That's what I think he's saying. Okay. Yes. Prometheus, however, is male ingenuity, brilliance, industry, diligence, 
all these Greek stereotypes, I guess. Yes. Taken to an extreme. Yes. No restraint. Right. So they both have to get brought down under expectations of the culture that's, that's in order what, for society to function. Uh, that's exactly what I think he's saying. Here. Huh. Yeah. It's a very suggestive um, mm-hmm. thesis. I don't know what to think of it. Right. Um, let me finish it up. Yes, please. Yes. Both, therefore... Uh, undergo ordeals designed to harness their creative energies, the delirious wandering associated with a young woman's sexual awakening and the physical coercion required to subdue arrogant male strength. And both reap rewards when they accept their appointed stations. Io wins maternal joy and renown for adopting the matrimonial mean between abstinence and promiscuity and Prometheus ritual honors for performing his delegated role in the cosmic polity led by Zeus. Can we pause there? Yes. Okay. So... The notion that um, male excess in matters of leadership and superiority and so forth, that that's being disciplined or whatever the term is, uh, harnessed, their creative energies are harnessed by him being chained to the wall kind of. Yeah. That's a little bit persuasive. But what's the connection between a woman wandering around through desert places as a kind of um harnessing of creative energy no that I, that's I, a little bit of a stretch it is a stretch i think that's the weakest part of the argument okay yep so I, one of the things he says elsewhere in his article which in some ways it, it strikes me as kind of a no duh kind of point is that and it's good to remember is that he said we often we consider prometheus bound on its own as kind of its own solitary thing without right. with forgetting that this was just the first part of a trilogy you know so we have the titles you know the followed by prometheus the firebringer and then prometheus unbound right which we know involves a reconciliation between Zeus and Prometheus. Mm-hmm. And so followed by Prometheus at the zoo. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> um, so he, he I mean I think White does a good job in remembering that this isn't the end of the story. Yeah. It just kind of hyper focuses that, on helpful. the on the the, inju- the injustice of, right. of Zeus. Right. But to get back to the stupid joke. Yes. <laughs> it was funny last week. It's still funny. It's still isn't funny. It? It's still funny. Okay. Exactly. Right. All right. Right. There's one one final line in the opening quote. Yes, the justice of Zeus thus operates in tandem in their parallel ordeals. Okay, well, that's clear. Mm-hmm. It does operate in tandem. But it's the connection that White is trying to draw between the suffering of the two individuals that um, I wonder. I wonder, too. I, I like the, I think I'm with you. I, I like the, what he, how he kind of reframes how we should look at Prometheus there. The stuff about... Io's wandering sexuality, I think, okay, he's he's trying to force a square peg in a round hole. Well, the reason why that doesn't seem to fit so much is because she. I don't think she has a sense that she's coming to grips with the fact that she's an attractive woman. She's more like a hunted, mm-hmm. um, a, a, like a, a poor hunted individual who's just been terrified. Right. That's why it doesn't, that part doesn't ring true. Maybe you haven't read it carefully enough. Well, the only thing I could think of is... Um, maybe it falls uh, you know, under the, the heading of something like, you know, Heracles is driven mad by Hera and kills his family. Okay. And while we feel sorry for, for Heracles as a victim there, he's still to blame for that bloodshed. So yeah. there's kind of that double causation. Okay. So maybe there's something going on with Io too. She's a victim, but she's also to blame at the same time. Okay. I don't know. Well, let's get into it then uh, yep. in our first segment, uh, yep. which someone has aptly titled, oh, and I no. think it would be you, Jeff, Doe the Humanity. <laughs> right. I didn't know you were going to read that aloud. Well, it's funny. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so when we last left this, I believe we were talking, we were talking about the ocean episode. Yes. And so um, he finally takes off in his big four-footed winged thing pulled chariot. So it's a bird with four legs, if yes. you remember correctly. Yes, 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 yes. And um, Prometheus says, before Io shows up, he has a, another brief uh, interchange with the chorus in which he talks about, he muses upon his uh, famous role as the creator of human beings. Right. And how about a little bit of Greek here, Dave? I'd love that. So these are iambic trimeters. And it sounds something like this. These are from lines 437 through 441. Me toi chlide doke te made althadia. Sigan mesu noyad adaptomai ke ar, haron amout an hod a prusalumanon, kai toi the ois it tois ne ois tu tois gera, tisa los ego pantelos di o resen. Very nicely done. Thank you. Excellent. I just this week, yeah. I just this week finished a book I had been working on for a long time. Yeah. Reading it, that is. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Vox Graeca by W. Sidney Allen yeah. on the, uh, the pronunciation of. Uh, Ancient Greek. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, First published in 1968. I say working on it for a long time because 
I'm not a linguist, you know, I'm a philologist. And so some of the arguments were really difficult and it was slow reading. You need to kind of take your time, go through it. Yeah. Worth yeah. it? Um, well, yes, it's kind of an occupational requirement. I, I wanted to have read it so that I can be aware of the different arguments. Yeah. Worth it in terms of a lot of takeaways. Maybe not, but at the end of this episode, um, I have a couple of uh, bon mots I want to share with you. Yeah, so. that's really. I would like. I would love to hear more about that. Uh, I mean, I remember it teaching when I did teach the languages. Right. Uh, questions I would get from students like, well, and telling them, well, these are the differences. Right. In, in, how, in pronouncing vowel quantities, exactly consonants, right. and the uh, students went, well, how do we know that? Yes. Is they're dead languages. You know, how do we know? They were just trying to avoid the quiz. <laughs> is that what it was? Yeah. Right, exactly. But yeah. it's an important question. Yeah, it is a very important question. All right. All right, so let me um, give a little bit of um, uh, our our translation here. This is for like, a reminder of our translator's name. I'm just blanking. Deborah out. Roberts. Yes. Professor okay. Deborah Roberts. Yes. So Prometheus says here, don't think it's delicacy or stubbornness that keeps me quiet. And he's talking to the chorus, uh, the daughters of ocean here. My knowledge eats my heart as I see myself mistreated in this way. And yet who else but me distributed in their full privileges to these new gods? No need to speak of that. You know the story. But listen to the miseries of mortals, childish until I made them intelligent and capable of thought. You want to read a little bit from there, Dave? Oh, that's very nice. I do just want to comment on one aspect of her wonderful translation. Yes. I think this part, uh, my knowledge eats my heart. Yeah. I think that's the line of uh, the translation of sunoya dedaptama ka'ar. Yes. I am uh, feasted upon, daptomai, I am feasted upon heart-wise, ka'ar, mm. in my knowledge, sunoya. Mm. She got that really nice. That is great. Dave, you want to pick up the translation uh, there? Sure. So uh, I'm beginning it. I tell you this. Yes. Yep. I tell you this, and again, Prometheus speaking to the chorus, not to cast any blame on human beings, but to show the kind intent in what I gave. At first they saw, but seeing was no use. They heard, but didn't hear. Like shapes in dreams, they passed long lives in purposeless confusion. They knew no homes of sun-warmed brick or wood, but lived like swarming ants in lightless caves beneath the ground. They had no way of telling when winter would arrive or flowery spring or summer with its fruits. In everything they acted without thought till I explained the risings and the settings of the stars so hard to read. And I did more for them. I invented number, cleverest of devices, and writing hard at work to help recall all things to memory, the muse's mother. I was the first to yoke wild animals as slaves of pack and collar so they might take on the weightiest of mortals' burdens. I harnessed horses to the chariot, delight of the extravagantly rich. That'd be like the Tesla, right? Yes. <laughs> no one else but me invented sailing ships that roam the sea with linen wings outspread. I found all these contrivances for mortals, but to my sorrow, I have no device by which to escape my present misery. So all of these wonderful things that he did, uh, for not only creating human beings, but teaching them and giving them all of these right. these inventions. Yeah. So one of these questions that I, that I often get from my, my myth students is, why did Prometheus create human beings? Right. right? So I mean, the, the obvious, you know, corollaries. You know, he creates them out of out of dirt and mud, and so it makes you think of Mudman of um, of Genesis right. or the Enuma Elish or th these Mesopotamian um, you know, stories about the creation of hum humanity. But why does Prometheus do it? Mm -hmm. Why does he care so much? There really but, is no reason given. Yeah, it's it's really is quite puzzling. And it strikes me that we have this phrase Socratic irony, but we don't have a phrase Promethean irony. But I think that at the end of this quote, uh, which I, I think may be the same one that Professor Roberts read for our very f uh, first episode, mm -hmm. which is just fine because it's beautiful poetry, um, there's a tremendous irony here. He created all these devices, but to my sorrow, I have no device. I can't get out. It's like the person who digs himself into a hole, kind mm -hmm. of, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Something like that. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a great, that's a that's a wonderful piece of, of kind of dramatic irony. Yes, Promethean irony. Promethean irony. That's yeah. All right, so um, we go on from this, Jeff. Look, we we got to move on from this. Yeah. So, um, but Prometheus assures the chorus that uh, I mean, who are constantly worried about Prometheus's own sufferings, um, that he assures them that one day the tyranny of Zeus will end, and he will have to bend the knee to fate and necessity, just like everybody else has to. So, how does that square with Stephen White's? Um, theory about the meaning of the play. Does that does that mean everything is going to be upset in the end? Um, or, or the if the purpose of the play is to reinforce the norms of Greek culture, you know, as relationships between men and women and man's place and woman's place. Yeah. How does the fact that um, 
Prometheus says Zeus will be replaced at some point. How does that fit the thesis? Well, it I don't it doesn't. I mean, I guess we could say uh, we know how the story goes is that Zeus isn't replaced. But I mean, Zeus does come around. He has to end up compromising with Prometheus. He does have to have to make a bargain with him to get this information that he needs. I don't know how that fits with mm. you know both Prometheus and, and Io coming under you know Zeus's control and having to kind of submit to him. So so Greek. Greek society continues on. They swap Zeus for another god, or it doesn't really matter who the god is. He's just a stand-in for the reinforcement of social structure. I don't. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Let, let's um. Let's let's keep it in our pocket and see where we go. Right. And so then finally, um, Io shows up. She shows up. Right. Yeah. And so the again a typical interpretation of the play of, of you know who these characters represent that ocean represents um, you know, Prometheus's uh, peer, uh, uh, the God's point of view, another way of kind of looking at Zeus's um, mm-hmm. newly found power. And then Io represents... Because he's a titan. He's right? a titan. Right. And Io represents humanity. Okay. And so... So Io, Io. It's off to work we go. That's right. <laughs> oh, man, that's terrible. <laughs> that's yours. I know, it's still terrible. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so um, I thought we could talk a little bit about the background to Io's predicament, although it's fairly well explained within the play itself. I would think. Yeah. But it's it's worth looking at Ovid for just a, a brief moment. Right. We don't want to spend too much time no. on it because then we can't do an Ovidian vignette no, exactly. on Io. Exactly right. right. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe this um, this first paragraph okay. uh, that we have in here might just set this up nicely. And this is the A.S. Klein translation? Yes. Okay. Which you can find uh, free online. It's a, it's a really good translation. Is it poetry.com? Is that... Uh, Poetryandtranslation.com. Poetry and translation yep, he's got a, he's got a ton of stuff that yes he's yeah, yeah it's 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 quite good yep um read this for us Dave okay you? so this is um right after what is it lines 587 through 600 in book one yep. yes of book one so Jupiter first saw her that is Io returning from her father's stream and said virgin worthy of Jupiter himself who will make some unknown man happy when you share his bed while it is hot and the sun is at the highest point of its arc find shape in the deep woods and he showed her the wood's shade. But if you are afraid to enter the wild beasts' lairs, you can go into the remote woods in safety, protected by a god. And not by any lesser god, but by the one who holds the scepter of heaven in his mighty hand, and who hurls the flickering bolts of lightning, do not fly from me. She was already in flight. She had left behind Lerna's pastures and the Lyrsian plains' wooded fields when the god hid the wide earth in a covering of fog, caught the fleeing girl, and mistreated her. Yes. Yeah, it's a brutal story. It is. And I mean, as you're reading that, it reminds me very... I mean, there's a lot of stories like this in, in Greek myth, this, uh, this pattern. It reminds me of Apollo and Daphne, where he speaks to Daphne in a similar kind of way as he's chasing her down. Uh, the ending there is different, where she is saved from yes. the violence of the god by being turned into a tree. Yes, Io does not escape that violence. No, she doesn't, and um, she has the wisdom to escape before he even finishes the speech. Right, because she knows the violence that he represents. Exactly. So as the story goes, then um, she uh, I, another very typical um, part of these stories is uh, Hera is upset. By right. or uh, Juno in Ovid's telling. Yes, yep. Juno is upset by Jupiter's infidelities, and she takes out her anger on um, on the woman. Right, and so and I guess the reason she does that is because she can't take out her anger on uh, Jupiter. He's too powerful. He's too powerful. Right. He's a what was he? He's a big brute. He's a big brute that refuses to die. Right. Right. I mean, there must you must have encountered school. Um, schoolyard bullies in your day i did were you afraid of them uh, there were a couple that yeah that uh, caused some nightmares for me absolutely mm. yes mm. big big zeus's uh, really wandering the playground how about you well i encountered many and because of my stature at the time which was um i don't know uh, even then not very significant um there were bullies you know that mm-hmm. frightened me but i always seemed to have a sense maybe it was promethean that um an appeal to an adult would settle this. I, I knew I was never in any real danger yeah. because there were teachers and principals and adults around. I mean, sure, they weren't always paying close attention and the guy could stuff you in a trash can before they got there. Yeah. But I think this kind of emboldened me because I knew, you know, they, they can't really do anything very serious to mm. me. Mm-hmm. Call me some names, you know. So you st- had that kind of awareness my lunch. even as a I think kid. so. Yeah. I think that kind of gave me a sense of comfort. I mean, what are they going to do to me? Right? Yeah. Teacher so-and-so is right, Mrs. Nelson's right, right over there. there, right? So I know they're not going to 
Yeah. So so it, it never came to fisticuffs? It did come to fisticuffs. It did. Uh, a while, uh, once in a while. Yeah. I had the great um, blessing of being raised in a, a setting that wasn't especially violent, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if this were, I mean, not really at all. Right. If, if this were a playground in some more dangerous area where the bully was carrying, you know, something other than a pack of Wrigley, I'd have probably been in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Zeus is, he's a he's a bully. He's a bully. So um, Iowa's eventually, she's changed into a cow. Yes, yeah. why? Why? Can what? you explain this? Well, I mean, I've, I've read a number of things. I mean, uh, Io is, I mean, she has these other associations with the, with the the moon, right? And you know the, the the horns, the crescent horns of the moon is off, is is often a, a an ancient symbol used. Well, I guess I mean yeah. not why was she changed into a cow? Oh, but why was she changed into a cow? Gotcha. Well, well go ahead and answer this question for the audience, Dan. Well, I think it was Jupiter's attempt to hide her from Juno, right? Of Make course. her inconspicuous. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then he sets this this famous creature Argus. Yes. Uh, to um to to guard her to watch her right yeah. and why did he do that oh well, why indeed because when you're guarding a cow the stakes are high <laughs> oh, man, we we gotta we gotta nip this in the bud man <laughs> you know you know how Michael Snell feels about your puns he likes is it smell is it Snell oh what did I what did it I is say? Michael Snell Stel. sorry Michael that's right right this, uh, this could go on for a long time. <laughs> So anyway, so Argus, uh, yeah. is, Argus is this creature with the hundred eyes, right. right, all over the body. You would think he's the perfect security guard. Yes, right. right? Yeah, and it, uh, no, should... no smartphone. Every eye peeled. Yeah, exactly. I'm guessing that Odysseus named his dog after this creature. That's right. right. The watchdog. Who you know? Who better to guard your things than right. someone with one hundred eyes? Yes. And um, so I should, I think I missed Jupiter doesn't set uh, Argus. It's Juno who does this, right? All because she she's afraid. She knows that uh, Jupiter is going to try to get at Io. Yes. In other words, the the concealment, the disguise did not work. Yes. Juno found Io out. Right. And then so Zeus in turn seeks to rescue Io and sends Hermes down to basically bore uh, Argus to death, right? Uh, was uh, was Hermes like a classics professor or something? <laughs> Some of those, but yeah, kind of speaks in a nasal monotone for hours, <laughs> and one by one puts all of those hundred eyes to sleep, and then kills the creature. Yeah, and it's terrible. It is terrible. And then again, Hera comes back as Io's now wandering around the world, being chased by this gadfly that she's set upon that constantly is stinging Io. And we in this play, we see her in these constant throes of, 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 of unending pain. Right. Yeah. Do you want to read this part about um, Jupiter transforming Io into a heifer from uh, from Ovid a little bit? Uh, is, that the, is that the second paragraph? That yeah. Right here? Yeah, so, sure. Meanwhile, Juno looked down into the heart of Argos, surprised that rapid mists had created night and shining daylight. She knew they were not vapors from the river or breath from the damp earth. She looked around to see where her husband was, knowing by now the intrigues of a spouse so often caught in the act. When she could not find him in the skies, she said, either I am wrong or being wronged. And gliding down from heaven's peak, she stood on earth's ordering, stood on earth ordering the clouds to melt. Jupiter had a presage of his wife's arrival and had changed Inachus's daughter, that's Io, into a gleaming heifer. Even in that form, she was beautiful. Saturnia approved the animal's looks, though grudgingly, asking then, whose she was, wherefrom, what heard, as if she did not know. Jupiter, to stop all the inquiry, lied, saying she had been born from the earth. Because that will happen, you know, Jeff. Cows will just, <laughs> just spring, spring up out of the, out of the earth. Yeah. Nope. So Zeus is not only a bully, but he's he's pretty stupid. He is pretty stupid. He's not clever. No. He's, no, he's not clever. Right. Um, then Saturnia claimed her as a gift. What could he do? Cruel to sacrifice his love, but suspicious not to. Shame urges him to it. Amor urges not. Amor would have conquered shame, but if he refused, so slight, a, so slight a gift as a heifer to the companion of his race in bed, it might appear no heifer. Mm. So there's, yeah, that's the story. That's how Io become, becomes a cow. And then the, the business with Argus comes after this. There is here, Jeff, a, in Ovid, a little bit of a, a sketch of some of the sufferings that uh, she experienced. Yeah. It's not nearly as extended as what we'll see in the Prometheus Bound. Right. Uh, but maybe I could just read a few lines of that. Yeah, please do. So, um, Io grazed on the leaves of trees and bitter herbs. She often lay on the bare ground, and the poor thing drank water from muddy streams. When she wished to stretch her arms out to Argus in supplication, she had no arms to stretch. Trying to complain, a lowing came from her mouth, and she was alarmed and frightened by the sound of her own voice. When she came to Inachus's river banks, that's her father, where she often used to play, and saw her gaping mouth and her new horns in the water, she grew frightened and fled 
terrified of herself. Those are some nice, those are some really powerful lines. It is. It's comma tragic though. Comma tragic and that is just well, it's I kind feel of ridiculous really, to imagine. Is, yes. It is. And yet he is such a skilled poet he can create genuine sympathy out of something ridiculous yeah that's that's what strikes me at least i remember reading something um uh, an article on apuleius where uh lucius you know who turns into a donkey yes. that story uh, has a similar kind of uh, experience where he's trying to get used to his donkey limbs and it was right. suggested that he uh he was probably borrowing from this episode oh of it. yeah huh. it's really interesting interesting yeah speaking of gaping mouth and new horns yes it's time for the ads all right This episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by the good people at Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, these guys have been with us from the very beginning of this podcast. Uh, they are one of these uh, the, these companies that is keeping the flame alive. Absolutely. So they're doing on a on a kind of a macro scale what we're doing on a more micro scale right. here, right? And so uh, they are the purveyors of, of classical texts. They've been in business for 52 years mm-hmm. uh, now since um, 1970, 1971. Uh, with offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Indianapolis, Indiana. Dave, tell us a little bit about what you like about Hackett Publishing. Well, I like the affordability of the text. Yep. I like the um, breadth of selection, the accessibility. I don't like the covers. <laughs> you you don't like the covers? <laughs> no, I, oh, I, I like them fine. Right. I just try to poke you a little right, bit. Right, exactly. Just not, not as much as I do. No, nobody right. could. Uh, <clears throat> I like the fact that for several titles, they have multiple translations. Just this week, uh, someone asked me, well, it was in a public forum. They weren't asking me in particular, but it was a general question. Recommendation for Thucydides. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I bet Hackett has something. So I went to Hackett and yep, there it was. Sure enough. Uh, and affordable and nicely done. I could recommend it to uh, that individual with no hesitation. Yep. Confident they were going to get an accurate and... Uh, you know, good value translation of Thucydides. Yeah. So I like that. Exactly. So um, I love it. Uh, I teach a population of students that, that generally speaking, doesn't have a, a lot of uh, disposable cash on hand. And so right. when, I th- when I think about textbooks, I'm always trying to be mindful of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have no hesitation of, of ordering Stanley Lombardo's translation of the Odyssey from my myth class because I know my students can get it for seven, eight bucks. Yes. Um, and incredible. It's incredible. So um, listeners... Do yourself a favor, go to hackettpublishing.com, that's H-A-C-K-E-T-T publishing.com. Check out their massive selection. It's not just classics, they've got stuff from all over. South American studies, studies in Asian philosophy, modern philosophy, art. Yes. Runs the gamut. Religious studies, um, check it out. And uh, be like uh, Michael Stell. That's right. And use this coupon code. Be like Mike, be like, what you're saying. Right, so uh, find the text that you want, um, uh, t- drop them in the basket, type in this coupon code, A-N-2023. Um, and Dave, that'll get them two wonderful things. Yes, it will get them 20% off. Yes. And I'd like to say that Professor Roberts has a new translation of uh, Aeschylus coming out in the spring. The Persians, The right? Persians in the spring of 2024. So you might want to snag that if you have enjoyed uh, her uh, edition of Prometheus Bound that we've been reading. 20% off and... Free shipping. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by Racial Coffee. Now, can we say enough good about racial coffee, Jeff? I think we can. Okay. <laughs> we can say enough good. We can, we can say many excellent things about racial coffee. All right. Coffee, so yeah. this morning I wake up, I have my very rich and satisfying breakfast. I had a friend coming over to sit in the sunroom with me and, and talk for a bit. And I thought, I'll just make some excellent racial coffee. And I did. Yes. And it was a smooth, seamless, satisfying process. Everybody needs little rituals, right? They, we do. And yeah. uh, this one is is delightful. Fantastic. You have the ratio eight, yeah. right? Uh, yours is, you've got the... It's, it's the, oyster color. With the walnut accent. With the walnut accent. I picked oyster because I thought it would kind of match the general decor of my kitchen. Yes. And you know what this means. What does that mean? I can never move. Right. That's right. You're stuck. Right? I'm there forever. <laughs> right. Yeah. Every All, all uh, updates have to be done around the coffee machine. I'm on the ratio. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So I have the ratio eight too. I've got the stainless steel. Oh, stainless. steel, And the recently acquired. What color is your carafe? It, it is. Uh, well, I was using the glass carafe. Yes. But now the I have. Hand-blown borosilicate. Yes. And now I have the. the the stainless steel um, weighty hulking flag the hulking flag in which keeps it warm for hours right so yeah I, I love my machine um, and uh, yes my kitchen would would be would be much poorer without it so you have the eight yep you had the six I did but what's coming down the pike we got the ratio four is oh coming yeah down, I believe in the early in the new year I believe that's right? that's the hope right yep. this is going to have the same technology the same innards uh, to use some Latin the same viscera mm-hmm 
Nice. Um, uh, you think so? Yeah. <laughs> the same viscera of the six and the eight, but a smaller footprint and a more accessible price point, which Excellent. means not as expensive. Right, right. But made with the same high quality. Absolutely. Right. Really high standards. Yep. So, listeners, uh, go to ratiocoffee.com. That's R-A-T-I-O coffee.com. Uh, and look at these machines. The the Right now, the eight and the six. Um, keep an eye out for the four mm-hmm. coming. Um, and if you, if you like what you see, if you want to invest in your coffee future, Pick one of these machines, and then Dave, what should they do once they do that? Yeah, well, they should enter this coupon code, but actually, if they enter racial coffee, and then backslash, and then they spell out the word for, yes. F-O-U-R, mm-hmm. they can get a little sneak peek. Uh, so, uh, a sneak peek. A sneak peek. Yes. <laughs> That's what, at boy, whew, the words aren't coming, at what is coming down the line. Right. But if they go there, they should enter this coupon code, A-N-C-O. F7. Right. And that F stands for? Flavonoids. Flavonoids. Gotcha. Because that's what's in your coffee. Flavonoids. <laughs> right, right, right. And what will this get them, Jeff? That will give them 15% off their entire order. Incredible. Check it out. All right, Jeff. Well, as we get back into it here, mm-hmm. and uh, we actually we start the wind down, right? Because it's, it's pretty late now. Yep. Um, Io makes a big impact, doesn't she? She does. She comes in... Uh, uh, bewildered, confused, and we immediately see here this this woman in deep pain. That's right. So uh, let me just read. Up. I'm not going to read this this whole section I have here, but just a few lines uh, where she shows up. Uh, the first thing that she says again. This is Robert's translation. She mm-hmm. says, "What land? What people? Who is this? I see in a harness of stone facing wintry storms. What was the crime that called for this this death? Tell me. Where on earth have I strayed in my grief? Hmm. What I thought was so interesting about Io's um. Uh, entrance and this goes on uh, uh, in uh, in her speech as it continues is that yes we hear we see her suffer terribly and we do hear about her sufferings but her first concern is about Prometheus yeah and she is she feels bad for him and she wonders she wants to know about his pain hmm. before she asks about her own and I thought that's that really is remarkable striking right so that's, she is moved to compassion yes. even though she is herself in the midst of midst torture of pain. and i think that's that's hmm. that is so incredibly humane it is and, and moving or bovine it's it's very bovine right yeah. yeah 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 right i was also struck by you'll forgive me for this i think that her total lack of knowledge of the geography you know that i come from an agricultural background mm-hmm. and i learned recently that there are now um fenceless cows in parts of the West, mm-hmm. they're wearing a collar that, like a dog collar, can deliver a, a slight electrical stimulus. Yes. And this collar has a GPS chip in it. So you do not have to actually establish a fence for cows at all. When they reach the point where you want them to stop, they'll feel the little jolt. They'll feel the little jolt on their neck and they'll turn around and head the other way. That's so interesting. Yeah, so so Io was obviously totally lacking in this. She had no <laughs> idea where she was. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. But I mean I think that's that's uh I mean, part of her suffering, she's she's wandering without any. There's no goal in mind. It's just it's just right. it's wandering and suffering. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, the, the last thing on her mind is is uh, is where she is. Or right. Maybe, yeah. But this, you know, this initial response is, uh, <clears throat> what was the crime that called for this death? Yes. Immediately followed though by an expression of her own uh, agony. Right. Right. She's. Do you want to read that part, please? Yeah. Sure. So she ah ah the pain the pain it stings me again. I'm wretched. Ah, the gadfly, the ghost of earthborn Argus. Get him away. Oh, no, the terror. I see him, the herdsman, with, a, with countless eyes. He and his shifty look keep pace with me. He died, but the earth does not cover him. He comes from below to hunt me in my pain and drives me starving along the sandy shore. And I think, I think um, Robert has a footnote on this. This is this kind of an Aeschylean um, originality where Argus is dead. Uh, Mercury or uh, Hermes has killed him. Uh, but she still is haunted. The by ghost him. of Argus. Yes. So it's not just the gadfly; even the ghost of Argus mm-hmm. is, is following her. Yeah. But then, in the midst of this threnody, she starts to speak to Zeus directly, mm-hmm. right? Calling him son of Kronos. What wrong did you find in me that you yoked me to such pain? Ah, ah, and wear me down, wretched and frenzied, in fear of the glad the gadfly's sting. Yep. So she, like Prometheus, is a, a victim of Zeus. And is suffering uh, as it appears uh, unjustly uh, for um, uh, uh, unjustly for no fault of her own. Right. 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 And so uh, again, that seems to, on the face of it, counter White's thesis is that we're really meant to see her as kind of a, a representative of kind of female sexuality that's gone beyond the bounds. I'm I'm buying it less and less. Yes. Yeah. Now, when you hear the words from her own mouth, 
Yeah. She was not a, I mean, a willing participant in any sense. Right. What, what bound did she transgress? Exactly. And that's what makes her so sympathetic. Exactly. So Prometheus reluctantly tells her yep. uh, many more wanderings and sufferings are ahead for her. Right. So it's got to be hard news to deliver. Hard news to deliver, and especially given that uh, we remember that Prometheus, he tells the Chorus, one of the gifts that he gave human beings is that he gave them blind hopes. He took away the, the ability to see their future. If they could see what's coming, they'd go fetal, right? Right. And this is what Io begs of him. You know, please tell me. And he he's reluctant to tell. Her. He says, "Okay, you've, you've got a lot of bad stuff ahead of you." That's right. Right. So I think we should read this dialogue. This stickomythia yeah. yes. here. One of us should be Prometheus, and one of us should be Io. Yeah. Shall we draw straws? No, I, I'm going to let you choose. Who do you want to be there? Well, I don't want to choose. That's too much responsibility. Okay, well, then I'll choose. Ah, ah, the pain. <laughs> Go ahead. I will be uh, Prometheus. But then. I wanted to be Prometheus. Oh, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. you'll be Prometheus. Prometheus. And you'll be Io. And I'll be Io. All right. all right. Just a brief setup uh, for us. So Prometheus has told Io about all her wanderings and sufferings to come. Um, but he tells her, but hold on. Um, as terrible as this is, he is going to fall one day, or at least there's that possibility. So there's a silver lining. So that's what he's going to tell Io about in this dialogue. Okay. So Prometheus starts and says to her, go ahead, be happy. What I say is true. By whom will he be stripped of the tyrant's scepter? By himself and his own empty-headed plan. How so? Explain if there's no harm in it. He'll make a marriage he later comes to regret. With a god or a mortal? Tell if it can be said. Why ask that? It's the part I mustn't speak of. It is his wife who makes him lose his throne? Yes. She'll bear a child who's greater than his father. And there's no way for him to escape this fate? None. Unless I help him once I've been released. Hmm. Yes. So how was my Io? Not bad. Not bad. I could maybe I could a little deep. A, a little bit, mode a little bit more, and maybe a little bit more kind of whiny and high pitched. Okay, That's right. So we'll work on it. All right. All right. I was trying to get some, you know, bovine undertones in there. <laughs> right. So. I heard a little bit. It was okay. Right. Um, so, so does Prometheus know the future, or can he control the future? I thought that was this is kind of an interesting uh, place. So you know, we often think of Prometheus as you know his gift is that he knows everything that's going to, to to come, and which which he does. But this is a place where he does seem to kind of hold the future directly in his hands, right? So if he doesn't give Zeus the name of this of this woman, which as we know the story, this is Thetis, right, who will, who will become the mother of Achilles then uh, Zeus will mate with this woman and produce a, fa- a son that will overthrow him, hmm. right? If he gives Zeus the name, maybe he can use it as a bargaining chip to be released from this punishment. Right. So it is one of these places where Prometheus seems to know two futures, and it's really kind of up to him to uh, decide which path is taken. Hmm. So, I, like the Choose Your Own Ending book. Exactly. Did you ever have those? Of course. We've talked about it before. Oh, have we? Really? Yeah, those are excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have a shelf full of those. Yes. Books. And I would just go right to the end and read all the alternatives. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah. So, so Prometheus, in some ways, he's trying to cheer Io up. Yeah. Right? And he's saying so that Zeus will fall. Um, but then he adds to this by saying, hey, not only that, um, but... Now, Johnny Pop, you've got a pop culture reference right in here i do yes yeah. so and so he describes i as kind of being a you know an ancient forest gump mm-hmm. so, so it's not only is this going to fall but you you have a, a role to play in this run i run right and so and he talks about you know in these various places she goes in her wanderings she kind of she she sows the seed for some uh, mythic tradition and fertilizes it and, <laughs> exactly right um and so she sows the seeds of you know later monumental events and various persona are are, are right. deeply linked to the to the future mm-hmm. so she has a, a very important role to play in this whole story so do we know that she's pregnant with zeus's child at this point i don't i don't well i think he he uh, uh prometheus more or less kind of announces it yeah here, right? right so she says so she's, that, she's due to calf and and to calve and not too long yes right. exactly so he says that her son by zeus um epaphis uh, will be an important kind of part of the roots of Egyptian culture. Right. And, and some have even seen in his name and the connection to the bull with the god Apis. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, I now remembered where I was reading this, actually, about the PV. Mm-hmm. It was in uh, M.L. West's The East Face of Helicon. Mm. And uh, he does mention this connection between Epaphis and, and Apis. Well, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Good. There's some uh, linguistic connection. Yeah. And then he also mentions that the Danaids... Um, these this group of, of women who uh, 
who take uh, vengeance on their kind of their unwanted, uh, forced upon them husbands right. by killing them. They wind up in the underworld. And I thought that was maybe interesting. Is that maybe maybe in a kind of an implied, right. almost revenge by proxy, right? Of Io being taken advantage by Zeus, right? Um, her descendants, yes, kill off um, her attacker, her attacker. Their, their attackers, right? And one of the Dinaids is, is survives, mm-hmm. and she's the one who then becomes the mother of, of Heracles, yes, who will then uh, one day come Alcmena, right? Alcmena, yeah. Right. And he will come and ultimately be instrumental in freeing Prometheus from his but, bonds. But Prometheus has to wait a long time. A long time. And so does she. Right. right? So this uh, this is many, many generations yeah. uh, in, in the future. And Io's own wanderings still have a long way to go. Hmm. But it kind of brings, so that, it brings their two stories to, to, together in this really kind of fascinating, uh, definitely. Wa- wonderful, satisfying kind of way. Yeah. Definitely. But he's he's got to wait a long time for this, doesn't he, Prometheus? He does. So thousands of generations. Generations, mm-hmm. yeah. So Io then ultimately does leave, still crying in pain, um, but she has some, at least some hope. Some elpis. Yep. Okay. Yep. So then how does the play end? What's what's the note of resolution here? Does the chord resolve or are we left with a kind of uh, it is an unresolved, discordance? It is a discordant note that it ends on. So Hermes shows up, a very un-Hermes like Hermes. You know, he's usually the prankster, the jokester. This is not the Hermes who shows up. He's the, the guy that would have a, his own late night talk show. Totally. Right. His own kind of comedy podcast. Right. Right. Um, you know, he's the he, you know the jokester that shows up in you know the Odyssey with the Aphrodite and Ares episode. Right. This is not that Hermes. This he, is more of the Hermes of of well, what? he what's the analogy? Well, I mean, he comes down. It's just because speaking. He is the voice of the the anger and mm. uh, the mockery of Zeus. Mm. And so um, he he shows up and let me read a little bit of Robert's translation. He says, speaking to Prometheus, you. So, so I'm sorry. This yes. is Promethe- This is Hermes. Yes. Speaking to Prometheus. To Prometheus. Yes. Okay. You, the wise one, bitter and more than bitter, the one who wronged the gods in furnishing honors to mortals, I mean the thief of fire. My or- father orders you to take the- orders you to name this marriage, the one you boast will make him fall from power. What's more, he tells you not to speak of riddles, but say things as they are. Don't burden me with a second trip, Prometheus. Yeah, don't make me come back again. Doesn't he want his uh, frequent flyer miles? You would think. Yeah. Right? You see, Zeus isn't softened by such ways as yours. Mm. Uh, it struck me. I, I wonder if if uh, we're supposed to see kind of an irony here is that you know Hermes is mocking Prometheus for being a thief. Yeah, which is, that's one of the things that Hermes is the god of. Right, right? He's, he's the patron god of thieves. Right, he he uh, he steals Apollo's cattle on this first day of that's of, correct of, of life. That's right? correct. The first day of his of his life. Right, and here he twists the knife, and this is the first place in the play where Hermes says, so "Not only are you going to be chained to this rock, but these birds are going to come, and they're going to peck at your heart. They're going to peck at your liver." And your your agony is going to be um, you know tenfold. So he's a fool, right, for not giving Zeus what he wants. Right, and even the chorus says, you know, give in, just give him what he wants. Um, and it's here that kind of Prometheus really reminded me of Job. Yeah. Right, and you know, with all of his friends saying, you know, curse this god, look what's happened to you. Yeah. And be done with it. But he, Prometheus says, I will endure this. Hmm. Yeah. So now we're right near the end, aren't we? Yep. Prometheus has this closing speech. Yes. Can I read this? Yes, these are the last lines of the play, please. Okay. And now, in fact, no longer in word, the earth is shaken. The roar of thunder replies from the depths. Fiery coals of lightning flash forth, dust eddies and wheels. Every gust of wind leaps to contend with another in angry display. Sea is stirred up and mingled with sky. This onslaught from Zeus comes at me openly to fill me with fear. Oh, my revered mother. Oh, sky, whose encircling light we all share. You see... How unjustly I suffer, and that it ends with that that focus on the the uh, the un, the injustice, right? Yeah, the unrelieved suffering, right? And it struck me to you know so many uh, of the surviving tragedies will end. The chorus sings a little kind of closing song, right? And this one does not. Prometheus no. himself has the last word. He gets That's, the last word. That was really interesting. Yeah, yep. I'd like to read, if I may, a little quote here uh, from a book I'm very fond of. Yep, and that is called The Heroic Temper. Yes. By Bernard Knox or Bernard Knox studies in Sophoclean tragedy. Now you might say, Dave, uh, this is a play by Aeschylus. So why are you regaling us with Sophoclean tragedy? Well, there's a point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this book was uh, first released in 1964. So Knox says, these are pages 47 and 48. Prometheus goes down below the earth with a final cry of defiance. I am wronged. Ectica Bosco. In other words, I suffer things that are outside justice. Mm -hmm. Here, it would seem, is the model for the Sophoclean hero. The life of Sophocles tells us 
quote, that he learned tragedy in the school of Aeschylus. And this analysis seems to suggest strongly that, in fact, Sophocles found in the Prometheus Bound the prototype, already clear in outline, of that tragic pattern he was to make peculiarly his own. But of course it is not so simple. These resemblances to Sophoclean character, situation, and language in the Prometheus Bound are to be found only there in Aeschylean drama. We cannot trace a development of this particular form through Aeschylean tragedy to Sophocles. The Prometheus Bound appears to be, in this respect, a totally new departure in the work of the older poet. Mm -hmm. Such a thing, of course, is entirely possible. Aeschylus was, after all, the creator of tragedy and innovator on the grand scale. But the trouble is that the Prometheus Bound seems to be a totally new departure in his work in every other respect, too. Okay. All right. That's highly suggestive, isn't it? It is very highly suggestive. So this is, um, uh, we have so little yes. to make these judgments upon, right? Well, the Herculaneum scrolls, did you see the big news this week no, and the I, previous I, week? I, I missed that. So they are being uh, machine read, you know, for when they were first discovered, they were subjected to These all. carbonized scrolls? Correct. Right, yeah. But this man named Brent Seals has subjected them to X-ray computed tomography. Okay. Which is a fancy way of reading them while they're still rolled up and in cinders. And just this week, uh, some students using an, an AI technique were able to read some of the words on the scroll. That's crazy. So maybe we'll get some new tragedy. A lost play? That would be wonderful. That would be fantastic. It? I would yeah. like to see uh, Ovid's tragedy, The Medea, which is lost. Right. Yeah, I yeah. would really like to see that. That would be excellent. Well, uh, yeah, who says there is... There is uh, there's nothing new yes. in the in the in the canon. This is great, yep. great news. So Knox leaves us with that you know suggestion. Mm-hmm. Aeschylus set the trajectory for Sophocles, uh, if this isn't even a play by Sophocles, which is always a possibility. Right, right, exactly. Hey, I think I I don't have the clock in front of me, but my guess is we are up against it. We are absolutely up against it. All right, so we we got to get out of here. Um, so but before we do, Dave, tell us a little bit about the Moss Method, would you? Yes, I would love to. So the Moss Method for Greek is a program that I have developed, that which will take you from... Uh, neophyte to erudite. That's correct. It'll help you learn how to read Greek at a high level. Uh, just today, I was working on Module 3, uh, finishing up some work on that. Modules 1 and 2, broadly available. I wanted to read a little quote from uh, W. Sidney Allen's Vox Graeca. So this comes from page 125, just very brief. In 1267, 13th century... It was remarked by Roger Bacon that there were not five men in Latin Christendom acquainted with the Greek grammar. In 1311, the Council of Vienne recommended the appointment of two teachers of Greek in each of the principal cities of Italy. A Greek school was in fact opened in Rome, and money was collected for the founding of a chair at Oxford. In 1325, lectures on Greek were given in the University of Paris for the first time, but the language suffered under the suspicion of heresy. And the numerous treatises on Aristotle listed in the 13th and 14th century catalogs of the Sorbonne show no evidence of acquaintance with the Greek text. In 1360, Petrarch could still count only eight or nine Italians in the, in the whole country who knew Greek. Wow. My God. So in that sense, right? Yeah. Greek knowledge was not widely available. And that's so sad. Yeah. But today it is. You can go to mossmethod.com. You can check out the many, many free lessons I have. And if you like what you see and you want to learn some Greek from me, you can sign up for the course. It's uh, it's a great value, I think. Fantastic. And uh, if students want to learn Latin from you, they can do that too, right? That's correct. They go to latinperdm.com slash LLPSI, where I have prepared Unit 1, Chapters 1 through 9 of the Familia Romana textbook by Hans Orberg, Lingua, Lasena, uh, Lingua Latina, excuse me, per se illustrata, which I like to translate as Latin teaches itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, sign up for that course. Also an excellent value. There are a lot of things on the market. Some may be better, but I think in terms of the quality and the price, this is unbeatable. Fantastic. Yes, do check it out. All right, Dave, um, we got people to thank. Yes, we do. Who do we thank? We need to thank Mishka. Of course. First of all, our wonderful sound engineer who turns these around in record time and makes us sound better than we are, better yeah. than we could be. Indeed. And thanks also to these wonderful musicians, uh, Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin, whose guitar playing makes me very, very envious. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Uh, it's phenomenal. Great stuff. They can play the guitar just like ringing a bell. That's exactly right. Yep. As, as Johnny B. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, thanks to those guys and for 
for their generosity of allowing us to use their yes their very very system. generous so dave if people want to, a shout out like uh, mr stell yes if they got a question they got a comment what should they, they do? said they should send an email to jeff at ad nauseum.com don't forget the v be sure to include a little complaint and criticism or or they can write to dave at dave at ad nauseum.com and also don't forget that v you can go to our website ad nauseum.com and pick yourself up a nice an hat an an t-shirt um, an Erasmus quote t-shirt, Quinocent, Docent, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. Um, Hercules holding up the world, uh, wrestling with a lion, some very interesting images. Yes, show the world that you are proud that you are one of the people keeping this this uh, this torch in hand. Taking it in and keeping it down. That's right. Hey, Dave, what we got going on next week? Next week, I think we're going to try something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to look at the work of Henri Irene Maru. Oh, wow. That sounds very French. Yes. I yes. don't even know if I pronounced it correctly. <laughs> uh, a History of Education in Antiquity. All right. So this is a classic book from the 20th century about the classics, A History of Education in Antiquity. Now, it's a big, fat book. I'm mm-hmm. not all the way through it. We'll probably have to cut it up into pieces, but we'll just see how it goes. You know, make it into different episodes, but yep. we'll see how it goes. Sounds good. Sounds really, really interesting. And I believe you also have our gustatory parting shot. Yes, I do. Does the name W.C. Fields mean anything to you? Yes, it does. It means a few things. Okay. All right. What, what What's did, one of them? Well, uh, he was kind of a cranky guy, right? He's a vaudevillian. Vaudevillian didn't like children, like yes, drank who, a lot. Who does? All right. <laughs> Yes, he was famous for supposedly disliking children. Right, right. So this is what he said. I cook with wine. Sometimes I even add it to the food. There we go. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.